It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm here with my co-host, Eli Kurtz. And I'm here with my co-host, Eric Farmer. Today we're talking about the costs of the Zhang Hu, as observed in the 2008 movie Ip Man. Uh, and also, Ip Man was the subject of our first ever Zhang Hu Hustle live tweeting party, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, so check out uh, hashtag Wusha Watch uh, on uh, our at Zhang Hu Hustle Twitter account, and you can see the participation of, of course, me and Eli, but also such illustrious sages as GM Gerrymander, Mo Tusino, PK Sullivan, and Rob Abrazado. They all had a bunch of smart stuff to say, and if you look for that hashtag, you'll be able to see it all in in real time as we watched Ip Man live together. Yeah, it was uh, it was a ton of fun, and they made a lot of great observations, some of which we have in the course of the show today, but um, uh, definitely go to Twitter and check out that hashtag for the full experience. Uh, you can even watch Ip Man while you're reading through it, and it would be like you joined us the night of. That's right. Just shout at your television. Yeah. Uh, I We always encourage shouting at the television. Just make sure when you're done shouting, you say hashtag Wusha watch and that'll it'll it comes to us somehow. It's internet. I I don't know. Yeah. I I don't understand how the internet works either. I understand it's a series of tubes. <laughs> that's what I that's what I was told. Cool. Well, we'll we'll figure it out one of these right. days. So speaking of figuring um, things out, <laughs> <laughs> uh Eli and I are going to start a Patreon for this this project here, our Jung Hu hustle project. It, we've got a lot of uh, goals and milestones and interesting things we're going to do. It's not quite ready yet. We will let you know, but we just wanted to put a little bug in your ear about Patreon. And so if you just want to, if you want to just warm up that wallet, just, just get, yeah. just get it slightly ever so warm. So it's ready. Uh, to, yeah. Pull it out, hide. flex it a little bit, mm-hmm. make sure there are some sweet ducats inside there. Get ready to uh, shower them upon us because the Patreon is coming. Yep. And this is really just an opportunity for us to engage with you in a different way. Is it not? We don't really care about money, but, you know, if you want to give us money, that's also fine, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the Patreon will support the podcast, but it'll also be kind of a a nest egg for us whenever it comes time to actually developing this podcast. role-playing game that we're working on. But I mean, that's all stuff that's a little bit down the road. We don't have to uh, spend too much time about it right now. Instead, let's talk about this movie. All right, man. What a great movie. So we're going to talk about Ip Man from 2008 Mm -hmm. directed by Wilson Yip. The writer is Edmund Wong. The cast is terrific. It has the illustrious Donnie Yen as Ip Man. Mm -hmm. Lin Hung Uh, plays Chung Wing Sing, his wife. And then our main antagonist, Hiroyuki Ikeuchi, as General Miura, and Tenma Sibuya as Colonel Sato. Mm-hmm. Very sinister Colonel Sato. Yeah. I remember a couple of us remarked during the uh, live tweeting party that the Japanese antagonists in this movie are basically anime caricatures of real people. Oh, yes. Sato is for sure like 40 stereotype of Japanese bad guy. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. And then Mira, Mira is anime villain. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They turn in some really excellent performances. And despite the uh, heightened 
presentation of their characters, I still really think they're effective and they don't withdraw you from from the uh, suspension of disbelief of the movie. Um, really, really good stuff. Absolutely. Do you want to get started with the plot? Yeah. So uh, the plot of this movie is ultimately pretty straightforward. Uh, it starts off with Ip Man, who is a husband, a father, and a brilliant master of Wing Chun in the southern martial arts hub city of Foshan in 1930s China. Um, no other master in town can touch him, but Ip Man won't take any students because he's a family man. That's what's more important to him. And uh, right out the gate, we see that that's going to set up some conflict. Uh, a newcomer to town, Master Liu, comes to Ip Man's home to challenge him to a friendly and, importantly, unpublicized sparring match to kind of get the lay of the land. While they're sparring and while Ip Man is handily defeating Master Liu, uh, there's this young kid whose name is Yuan, and he is trying to rescue his kite from a tree, and he spies in on the duel while this is going on. He sees Ip Man defeat Master Liu, goes back to his father's restaurant and tells everybody about it uh, later. Uh, and also later, Ip Man happens to be inside this restaurant with his business partner and friend, uh, Chow. And they're interrupted by Master Liu, who's caught wind of this uh, blabbing and comes to demand satisfaction for the betrayed confidentiality. But then another person shows up, Officer Lee, who I like to call Officer Tool because he's really just a jerk of a human. And he comes up and he threatens all of them for being disorderly, threatens to arrest them. Um, Yuan ends up getting admonished by his brother, Lim, uh, Ip Man emasculates officer Lee by just decimating the dude's revolver and, uh, things are resolved for the time being. We'll get into that, that other stuff. Um, but so everything seems to be going along fine. And then a group of Northern jaw who are basically just a bunch of bullies, like rough, uncouth bullies come into town to test their Kung Fu against the, the best in Southern China. And they're going around all of the various martial arts schools in Foshan. And no one in Foshan is a match for their leader, Jin Shan Zhao. And eventually, the was it Officer Lee, or Officer Tool, as we like to call him, mm -hmm. goes r rushing over to Ip Man and says, you need to do something about this. I know I'm a police officer and everything, but uh, this is clearly martial arts stuff. And these... These Northerners are ruining our reputation for martial arts. You need to come and and deal with them. So Ip Man eventually is forced to take on Jin in his own home and soundly defeats him. The city lavishes gifts and praise on him. They still they want him. Everyone wants to be a student, uh, but he still refuses to take on any students. So all of this is turned on its face when in 1937, the Japanese army occupies China and devastates Foshan in particular. Ip Man's family, which was wealthy and independent, is reduced to starvation in an alley hovel. And his wife gets sick. And at that point, Ip Man decides, okay, well, I think it's time for me to go see if I can find some sort of work I can do. He doesn't have any training, but he's going to give it a shot. Uh, he ends up finding work at a coal mine with some other former martial artists. And they have, uh, there's a uh, GM gerrymander pointed out this nice thing uh, at this moment. Ip Man and Lim, the brother of the snitch from earlier, are eating lunch together. And their lunch is this baked 
sweet potato or something. And Ip Man, he's eating his and he breaks it in half and puts half of it in his pocket, clearly to give it to his family at the end of the day. Uh, Lim sees this happen and he looks at his own potato and they have nothing. Obviously, they have one potato for their entire lunch. It's not a whole lot. But Lim breaks off half of his potato and gives it to Ip so that he can have some lunch too. And GM Jerry Manor pointed out that sharing a potato tells so much. It's such a simple action and there's almost no dialogue that's associated with it, but it's such a clear picture. One of the examples of some really great filmmaking uh, throughout the course of this thing. And so anyway, the Japanese general who is named Miura invites local martial artists to try their skills against black belt soldiers. Uh, And some of the Chinese fighters win, particularly Master Liu uh, throws the smack down on some black belts. But then Lim ends up fighting against General Miura with two other Chinese fighters. And from the get-go, they all realize this is not a fight they can win. General Miura's scale is just huge. But Lim refuses to give up, and he eventually dies for it. He is killed for it. He's beaten to death. Uh, It's a real thunderous kick. And then Ip Man shows up because he's like, hey, what happened to Lim? Nobody's telling me. Uh, He shows up just in time to witness Master Liu's death in a separate bout. And then Ip Man turns into Ip Manimal and obliterates 10 black belts at once. (laughs) (laughs) I normally don't approve of your jokes, but I like that one. (laughs) Also, in this scene, um, P.K. Sullivan made a really interesting point. He contrasted the fight between Master Ip and the 10 black belts uh, with the fight between Master Ip and uh, Jin from the Northern uh, Band of Ruffians. And he says, Master Ip takes on 10 Japanese fighters at once, and his opening move is to flip a dude and then step on his face. Big change from his previously graceful fight with Jin. It speaks volumes about him. And that's something that I, I want to discuss a little bit later on, too. It's, uh, it's totally true. Yeah, there's a real harrowing leg break in that oh, scene, too. There are so many awful breaks. Oh, my God. It's it's such a brutal scene. All right. So things start to get tangled up. So Ip Man trains his friend Chow's cotton mill workers because the northern bandits have come in and they've started extorting the workers. And they beat up Chow and they threatened them to get their money and basically doing the whole like protection racket sort of thing. And so Ip Man trains all of the cotton mill workers in Kung Fu. Uh, Officer Lee, who is a translator for the Japanese to the the people in Foshan, uh, and is just a real toady, Mm -hmm. shows a bit of actual humanity because he shields Ip Man and his family uh, against the Japanese by hiding them in his his own home. Uh, And then eventually the... Japanese army shows up at the cotton mill because they want to find, well, this is because Ip Man has killed some soldiers who were threatening his family. So the whole army descends on the cotton mill plant and they're going to start taking names unless they reveal Ip Man. And Ip Man finally, he rushes down there and he basically turns himself in. And then at that point, he challenges General Miura to a duel. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And one of the things I really like about the interactions between General Miura and Ip Man is that Ip Man doesn't speak Japanese and Miura doesn't speak Chinese. And so they have a real pure sort of form of communication that Miura will posture and Ip Man will 
say some things that sort of like somehow managed to take them down a notch. They, but they, they have an understanding because they're both of um, the same world. They're both in this John Hugh world and they have a, they have a way of communicating that some sort of somehow bypasses language. It's almost like they use violence as a form of communication. Almost, but it's almost like their ability to use violence as communication allows them to communicate anyway. It's very, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's an interesting thing to dig into, mm-hmm. uh, but Mira isn't convinced that Ip Man is better than he is, but they've both become built up as the, the icons of their respective culture. So the stakes for the fight are through the roof and everyone knows it. Colonel Sato, that villain threatens to kill Ip Man if he wins. Ip uh, smuggles his wife and son safely outside the city with Chow, but his wife begs Chow to let her finally support Ip in what might be his last duel. And the last duel is is something else, seeing these two sort of towering figures. And Ip Man wins, but then is shot by Colonel Sato. Maybe non-fatally, who can say? Because the movie ends. Um, but Lee is the one that keeps the shot from being instantly fatal. He jumps on Sato before uh, he can kill him. And then the city rises up and expels the Japanese occupiers and uh, and then movie over. Yeah. Well, I do want to say, though, we know for certain that the shot was not fatal because of the uh, I guess it's not a title card, but like the end card where we find out that Ip Man went on to do martial arts in all sorts of places. And he trained Bruce Lee and all sorts of fancy stuff like that. Right. It, we 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 find out that Ip Man is a real person. And that and and all of these these other things, but anyway, so there's the movie. It's it's not super complicated. It's not, and it's pretty quick too. It's an hour and forty five or something like that. Yeah, clips right along. Yeah, it's a story in three acts, and it gets through each of the acts pretty handily. So whenever we went into this movie, we knew that we wanted to watch it because it had broad accessibility thanks to Netflix. But we weren't really sure what topic we would find within. And then in the course of our discussion about it, we, we determined that this movie, like we said, is really about what it costs to be in the Zhang Hu. What, what cost do you have to pay to be able to join this thing? And, and also, what cost comes with trying to resist the pull of the Zhang Hu? Yeah, so we're going to take apart several scenes and we're going to look at them and examine this, examine them from this perspective. And... Uh, we'll see what we'll see what the costs are and 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 what happens to the various characters and how they react differently. So let's start at the beginning with Master Lu versus Ip Man. It's a really charming scene uh, for the most part. That Master Lu comes in and he's from out of town and he's he says, you know, hey, I'm going to challenge you to a duel. I heard your kung fu is great and I want to test yours against mine. And what they're really doing is ranking. Right, that he's Master Lu was like, I'm going to come in and I'm going to see where I am in the rank, mm-hmm. and if I can beat you, then I'm above you, and so everyone will want to be my student. I'm going to talk about the the setup for the this style of Jiang Hu uh, when we get to the end, but that's where we are right now. But it's very like it's very friendly, and we see that uh, Ip Man sort of denies the request. He says, No, I'm I'm home with my family. It's 
it's not it's not the time to fight. It's not a good time. But why don't you come in and have dinner with us? Yeah, and it's so it's so cordial the whole time. Uh, Master Liu is smiling, and Ip Man's smiling right back, and they're having conversation. Uh, they have dessert afterward. They smoke cigarettes afterward. It's it's well, no, Ip Man offers a cigarette. Um, right. I mean, that's the best thing. For- <laughs> Um, but the, 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 the subtext that's going on is that Ip's wife is getting annoyed. She knows, she knows what her husband wants to do mm-hmm. and it's just like, fine, just do, just do whatever. Um, but there's a, that home life is, is sort of like, we see that sort of beginning thread of what, what tension there is. If, if Ip wants to have this confrontation with Liu it's going to cost him something at home. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is he loves both his family and martial arts, but he can only choose one of them and he chooses his family, but he still loves martial arts. Oh, and that's loves to fight. Oh man. He loves to fight. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we see this fight with master Liu and Ip man and the whole time, Ip Man is basically just teaching Master Liu a lesson. He's always pulling his punches. He's clearly outclassing the guy. Um, he ends up <laughs> leaving the dude on the floor. And then he's like, I think that's enough. Thank you for the lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and Master Liu is just bewildered. He's like, wow, that was that was really something. What, what just happened to me? <laughs> yeah, it's really great. And it's the the thing that I really like about it is that in that moment, Master Liu was allowed to to accept defeat, to be deferent mm-hmm. to Ip Man, and to really absorb the lesson in Kung Fu that he was given very forcefully, um, but but not vo- not that violently. Yeah, I I get. I'm going to make this point later on, but I think Ip Man is a kind of pacifist, uh, and and I think that is this is the first time that we see that expressed in his character. Um, But I will say, like you said, it's really valuable to Master Liu that he has this peaceful and secret uh, confrontation with Ip Man and is taught a lesson that he has room to actually learn from as opposed to something that he needs to avenge. Uh, But our dear young friend Yuan, who's flying his kite, sees this and he... uh, He's the one who gabs and uh, brings all of that niceness crashing down uh, because the Zhang Hu cannot permit cordial confrontations. Well, it's it, because it was a private affair. Liu and Ip Man could have just they could have just never said anything ever about it again, and nobody would have known. Mm-hmm. But now that it's out there, it's damaging Liu's reputation. Reputation, yeah, it's costing his students everything. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it, there is quite a bit of fallout, and when when it comes out, when Ip and Chow are at the restaurant, and then like this whole this whole situation falls out, and Liu comes up and he says, "You have to fix my reputation. Like this was supposed to be private. What's going on?" And uh, it's pretty rough because Yuan has put them in a really uncomfortable position. Yeah, and this is this is one of the places where we see the benefit, the value of Lim, uh, Yuan's brother, as a character, because Lim is sort of uh, tertiary to the situation, but he can see what's going on, and he can see that Yuan, his brother, has put these two masters in a bind, and so Lim chooses to 
berate his brother in public about making up stories and basically helps the two masters to save face. Right, right. Uh, also in this this fallout scene, it's sort of tangentially related. It's it's more related for later is that we see that Officer Lee says, oh, well, why are you worrying about all of this kung fu nonsense? Look, I've got a gun and guns guns are what it's all about now. And so it man pokes the chamber out from the gun and it just goes flying. And it's just so clearly emasculating Officer Lee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who deserves to be emasculated? The dude is way too big for his britches. And he's talking about how the the modern world is here and like it's more powerful than Kung Fu. And then Ip Man is like, mm, you might be surprised. <laughs> right. And I think that's the right there is the sentiment of the movie, like kind of what the movie is about. It's like, well, what's the strength of Kung Fu versus the modern world? Yeah. And it's tied up in what we see in, in several different Kung Fu movies, uh, this idea that like tradition and the old way are still valuable, even in changing times. Um, and that is, as we've, as we've understood pretty deeply Confucian. I know there's an analect where, uh, Confucius says something like, you know, the one kingdom was great because it learned the lessons of the previous kingdom. And that previous kingdom was great because it learned the lessons of an even more previous or early kingdom. Um, and there are, there are little nuggets of wisdom like that scattered all throughout Chinese culture about how the old ways are were successful for a reason, and we should we should uh, venerate them accordingly. Right. So, do you want to talk about this next part? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so after the restaurant scene, and after that gets resolved, and we learn that there are consequences uh, whenever someone's reputation is threatened in the city, we learn a little bit more about how those consequences uh, can really ruin someone. Uh, because we get these northern bandits, these northern Shah coming in led by uh, Jin. And they come into town. What I think is really interesting about this scene where they kind of work over all the schools and beat up all the masters is that the first thing that happens, they, they walk up and they see all these schools that are practicing in this square because all the schools have just the one square where they can basically compete uh, visually against each other all day long. Um, Jin walks up to one of the masters and he's like, hey, can I, I'd like to practice with you. I'm from the north and I'm trying to learn what Kung Fu is like. And importantly, I think the master is the one who's like, do you mean practice or do you want to fight for real? And so he's the one who escalates at first, but then Jen is like, okay, well, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, and so they get into it. Jen handily defeats all of these masters. And I got to say too, I couldn't tell you most of the things about the specific styles that are on display in these, in this movie, but I know generally Southern styles are focused on a more rooted stance and, uh, punching techniques, whereas Northern styles are a lot more flashy with like long kicks and things like that. And we can see that Master Liu, the master in this first fight, uh, Ip Man, all of them are very close range punching and elbow based fighters. And Jin, despite him being this really rough and rowdy uh, Northern Shah, has just the most beautiful extended kicks that you've ever seen. Oh, it's really, it's it's jarring, but it's also a really interesting little cultural tidbit. Yeah, it's really interesting because it, it also, the conflict in styles 
And especially when Jin gets angry and is like, well, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to prove, we're going to escalate the situation. He gets very Mm -hmm. aggressive. And then these, all of these kicks Mm -hmm. and all of these things are just coming in. And the, the sound design in this movie really can't be understated. It's so great. And so you really feel the power and the weight of all of these kicks. And then if you're, you're looking and it's just Jin beating up all of these local masters. He's got four other guys behind him. And you're like, what are these guys doing? Yeah. And, <laughs> they're just the squad. Right. They're, they're there. But you're always curious to know, like, oh, what, what are these guys? Like, what's their Kung Fu like? If, I mean, clearly Jin is the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll say too, you know, importantly, even though Jin mops all these people up and he threatens their reputations among their own students, uh, he doesn't kill them. He he beats them and then he puts them in a position where he's like, yeah, well, you can't beat me, so you might as well give up. And that's that. And then just after that, they're all eating at a table, the, the Northern Shah are. And um, one of them says something about like, oh, you think we're going to hole up here? Uh, this food isn't like the food is good, but the masters aren't very good. And then Jin is like, yeah, well, you know what? We'll stay and we'll open up our own school. It's almost a hopeful moment for him. It's hard to feel too bad about him as a character uh, because you can tell that they've been on the road. They've been living rough. They've been living simply and they've probably gone hungry a few times. Right. But then the town in the form of the person that served them the food rejects them and says, you're you're not so good. You haven't fought Ip, and he's going to take you apart, and he's going to show you northern idiots what real kung fu is, and that gets them all riled back up again. Mm-hmm. And so they go to Ip Man's house, and this is where we see uh, the martial world and the home world clashing most explicitly and most violently. And th- this is a really it's a terrific scene because of we see the tension of the world of the Jiang Hu invading the world of Ip's household, because not just Jin and his boys show up, but the whole town shows up because Ip's got to defend the reputation of Fo Shan. That's his job in this, in this scene. And that's what, and that's what Lee needs him to do. And, and so he doesn't get a chance to back out before they're all in his house amongst all of his beautiful possessions and with his wife and his really adorable son and oh his his son is really adorable um i was gonna say though you mentioned earlier that uh there's kind of a tension in the it man household and you're totally right we forgot about a scene that happens earlier on where uh lim the brother of the snitch shows up and he wants a lesson after hours with it man and it's like yeah yeah why not okay let's let's do this and so he's kind of letting Lim show the techniques that he's learned and, and effortlessly defeating them every time. And then uh, the wife, uh, Wing Sing, and their son are sitting at this table nearby and the son is working on a drawing. And Wing Sing says, oh, go show dad, you know, l- let him see it. And so the little boy walks over and he's like, look at my picture, dad. And it kills me that it man just kind of casually like, no, 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 not now, I'm busy. And pushes him away. And then... Not long afterward, the wife gives a look and it man is like, okay, yeah, I think the lesson is over for the day. And she makes it clear like, hey, the problem is that you are ignoring your son because you care too much about martial arts. Why can't you just be a family with us? Um, 
and then we see it explode. The the martial world invades their home and there's no option but to fight. And they even start making fun of Wing Chun as being founded by a woman. And then the Northern guy has a moment where he, he breaks down and he's like, I'm just so disappointed with Fo Shan. I heard it was going to be great. And then Wing Sing is like, hey, you shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and she looks at it, man, and she says, don't break any of my things. <laughs> And then she walks away and then that's when you know it's on. You know, I think Officer Lee shows up afterward to say, like, you have to retain our honor. But he's unimportant. You know, when the wife starts getting involved, that things just got real. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and so there's some great uh, tone moments in that fight because it's a pretty serious fight. But then they smash up against a table and a bunch of like crockery and and teapots and stuff hit the floor and Jin goes I'll pay and then they just keep fighting and they keep fighting and it's there's a lot of really sort of nice sort of lighter moments worked into a very serious scene yeah he he offers to buy everything that he breaks and then there's a break in the scene where the little boy comes through wheeling in on a tricycle and he he's like mommy said that if you uh if you fight in the house then all of our things are going to be broken (laughs) (laughs) and it man's just like yeah yeah i get it (laughs) it's so it's such an absurd little like i don't know train crossing moment or something yeah it's a really interesting thing because this whole part is just prelude for what's coming up in the movie because once we move past this scene the whole tone of the movie shifts so we're just like really just soaking in all of this sort of like warmth and vitality that's happening in this scene and watching it sort of enjoy fighting but also having this tension with his wife but also having this duty to Foshan and you know all of these things kind of going on at once but it's it's sort of up and light and the cost right now is not that serious it's yeah yeah and like you know it man defeats Jin with a feather duster in this scene ultimately I, I it's it's just not terribly serious the stakes aren't really high right now um, but then the Japanese come and they occupy and they set up their little dojo and they start accepting Chinese fighters to come in and test their metal. And even before this dojo is revealed, we see like, the color palette changes. I think Rob Abrazado mentioned that the color palette changes uh, drastically scene to scene here. And all of a sudden, everything's washed out. Everyone's destitute. Uh, we really get a sense for how far Foshan has fallen. Yeah, I remember PK saying something about it being sort of apocalyptic looking once once it happens. And it's so sudden. You see the planes go over and then they, they start doing these tracking shots through the ruins of Foshan. And there's just people lying in the street and, and it's awful. And you're just sort of struck by it because it's such it's such a a strong narrative shift it's that – you hope that the movie can pull it off. It does pull it off, but it's one of those things that in storytelling, you if you weren't preparing your viewer for this this change in stakes to happen, they might not forgive you. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot to take in, but I think they accomplish it uh, definitely. So we see the costs in this are they're brought all the way down just to survival because. Miura is offering these Chinese fighters 
a pretty meager bag of rice to fight these Japanese black belt soldiers. Yeah. So once the occupation happens, uh, everybody is suffering. Everyone's destitute, like I said. And we discover that the Japanese general is entertaining uh, Chinese fighters who want to come and test their mettle against uh, black belt soldiers of the Japanese army. And in exchange, if they win against the soldiers, then they will get a bag of rice that they can take back to their family. And that's not nothing. I mean, earlier we see that Ip Man's family is down to scraping the last dozens of rice grains from their jar of food. Uh, they're, they're on the verge of starvation and they need this stuff. And the opportunity to beat up the enemy while also getting food is pretty tempting. Um, Lita, uh, Ip Man doesn't actually take it up the first time. Uh, Lim does. And he goes off and this is where Lim eventually dies. Uh, and, and what I think the death represents, uh, this is not so much about the cost of being in the Zhang Hu, although eventually he does pay for his life with it. But when they get to this space where all of these black belts are arranged around this square and where General Miura and Colonel, Colonel Sato are watching from on high, it's definitely a ritualized space. There are tatami mats on the floor. There are rules of conduct that happen when you're on those tatami mats. And um, we see examples of what happens when you violate those rules. And one thing I want to mention before we get into the details of that is that a ritual combat space does not mean the fighting is a ritual and that, and therefore fake. It means that Ritual is imbued in what is very real combat. And so the combat is even more dangerous than just physical blows because there are more entanglements for you to make a fatal mistake on that mat. Whereas otherwise, people are just fighting for prestige. Now there is responsibility to uphold the ritual while also competing in the way that you need to in order to maintain your own personal honor and duty. So that, I mean, that's where that, like, if any one of those things falls, that's where that fatal mistake can be. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, all the people that we see fighting or all the people whose names we know anyway, they have an additional goal, which is to subvert or defy the prevailing order of the Japanese army while they're doing these fights. Uh, it's clear that they view defeating Japanese black belts with, uh, making a tangible blow against the, the occupation. Well, I think the reason that Lim dies, why he doesn't give up, even though he's completely overmatched, this is when General Miura is fighting three of the Chinese martial artists, and Lim is one of them, and two of them are about to give up, but Lim keeps fighting and it costs him his life. He They just saw Master Liu fight and when he came through, Master Lu turns to Lim and says, beat all of them. Yeah, and, beat down everyone or something. Right. And Lu was uh, Lim's teacher, at least at some point. And so Lim has a responsibility to Master Lu. Mm -hmm. So if Lu says, look, you need to beat them, that's one more responsibility that's on there. That's one more cost that's on there. And that's why Lim keeps fighting. Mm -hmm. And the specific ritual that he breaks is that the fight ended. Right. Uh, they all, like his compatriots, bowed out and resigned. And the general acknowledged that. He shook his head no 
uh, like in disappointment, mm-hmm. but he allowed them to survive because he turned around to walk away. But then Lim charged him. And not only did he charge him, but when the general put him in an arm bar and was like, do you really want to die so badly? Like give up. Lim's response is to spit a bloody mouth in his face. And uh, that's where, that's where he loses it. He gets that thunder kick right to the collarbone and it's, it's all over. So we see Miura versus three. And then we see Master Liu come back and he fights three more. Mm-hmm. And this is a nice little subtle affront to the earlier display from General Miura. Right, right. Because he says, look, I, I want to do that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And But it doesn't go so great for Liu. No, he fails. Yeah, he He's not as good as General Miura. And we knew that. I mean, I think we as the audience, it was nice to see him redeemed a little bit as a martial artist, because all we had seen him do was lose to Ip Man earlier in the movie. But to mm-hmm. see him being a competent fighter, like made me feel more for Lou and to see him be so brave. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there is a violation of the, the, the ritual space that happens. Yeah, because he admits defeat, but then he grabs his rice to take home, and you only get rice if you win. And uh, we don't actually know why when it happens, but there's a gunshot, and uh, Master Liu is shot right in the head by Colonel Sato, and then uh, everyone is just awestruck. And Miura's mad. Oh, yeah. Miura's furious. He says... uh, well, Colonel Sato explains himself. He says, well, he took the rice, but he's, he broke the rules. You're not supposed to take the rice if you lose. So I was just I was just doing what the law demands. I was getting legal satisfaction. And um, yeah, General Miura puts Sato's own gun up against Sato's head. And he says, next time you pull the trigger in here, pull it at yourself. This place is for tournament only. <laughs> yeah, it's clear that Sato is not a member a member of the Jong Hu like oh, like no. Miura is and that he is he's sort of the thing that's piercing this heterotopic space he's bringing the war from outside into this space and sort of sullying this pure space well and he's the modern gun wielder on that side of the of the conflict he's the the symbol of the modern world that everyone else is railing against um, but yeah, he definitely does not understand the rules of the Zhang Hu, and we see him admonished for it. Uh, even when you're not a part of the Zhang Hu, if you interfere with its business, you will get a backlash. And I think that Sato and Officer Lee are sort of mirrors of each other, that Sato is sort of the villainous mirror of Lee, and that both of them are interacting with the world of the Jong Hu, but they don't understand the Jong Hu. They're not part of it, and they don't carry the the rules of the Shah within themselves, uh, which we'll see later. Yeah. So after uh, Master Liu dies, Ip Man decides that he wants to fight, and he wants to fight ten black belts at once. And uh, General Miura is given pause (laughs) he he's like who is this guy he wants to fight 10 of my black belts does he just want to (laughs) die yeah but uh he does 
say it's okay. And so Ip Man squares off against 10 black belts. And this is where we learn a little bit about what Ip Man's scale really is like. Yeah, it's it's a really brutal scene. I mean, we've seen some really some nasty scenes in this dojo already. Uh, But this is where some pretty gnarly leg breaks, some just rapid, um, you know, short punches to people's faces just over and over and over and over again. Uh, It man is he's getting out all of that, that fight that he's got in him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the scene where I think to myself, I would almost want to see the survival horror reshoot of this movie from the perspective of all those black belts where like after this scene it, there's a new movie where it's just all the soldiers who are like oh my god the boogeyman did you see him he's he's coming for us <laughs> he haunts my dreams at night <laughs> yeah that'd be a good one because it man is just a beast in this thing he's totally ruthless whereas before he was always pulling his punches and like the most he would ever do is like a slap or something against somebody i guess he did ruin Jin's day uh, in that one fight, but Jin had it coming. Everybody else, he's been very deferential, very pacifistic. But in this one, I think it's safe to say as many as half of those black oh, belts yeah. died. I think at least half. It it's very it's very intense, and it's oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the clearest demonstration of scale for me from a technical perspective in that fight, it's impressive that he fights ten people. It's amazing that he fights ten people, but there's a shot where he is fighting four of them at once. And it's not like they're all running in and out and he's like pushing them around or whatever. All four of them are throwing punches and kicks at him at the same time. And he is blocking and striking every single one of them. It's, uh, it's so impressive. You even in movies where you see martial artists fighting against a lot of people, you don't see it like that. You don't see it all at once. It's always staggered somehow. And it's just such an accomplishment from a storytelling perspective and from a technical perspective. It's amazing. Right. And we see the change in his character. And I think that's really the important thing yeah. from a dramatic perspective that we see here. Yeah. I mean, it's akin to the Limu Bai moment at the end of Crouching Tiger when he uses his sword magic. You know, it, like, that's, that, that's where we really understand the scale of this character. Yep, absolutely. That's that's exactly what I was going to compare it to. Oh, no, it's fine. I'm just glad that we're on the same page on this one because that's exactly what I was thinking of when I was watching it. Was just no, look here it is. Here's the scale. We're going to put it out there so that you can see it. And what's interesting is that that's not in the last scene of the movie. Oh no! I mean, almost when we get to the end, I don't want to say that the end is a foregone conclusion, but the fight takes a turn. And then it managed just winning. Yeah. I mean, I think the movie spends all of its screen time positioning Ip Man as an unbeatable person when you're meeting him head to head in a martial arts challenge. Uh, And so I don't really, I never really felt like it was contentious whether he was going to win against the Japanese guy. Uh, It was the question of like, what is the fallout going to be? Right. Right. What What's that cost going to be? Is he even going to survive the end of that conflict? Because we know that Sato is going to kill him no matter what. Right. 
Right. Well, we're jumping a little ahead, though. We've got uh, the cotton mill fight scenes, which I think are pretty fun. Oh, they are fun. Yeah, absolutely. And we get to see we get to see all levels of scale uh, in the cotton mill fight scene. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's instructive in terms of the cost of being in the Zhang Hu, too, because these people are not in the Zhang Hu and they get a taste of it and they think that they're hot stuff. But then they get in the moment and we see that, oh, no. It doesn't quite work that way. You're oh, still not a part of the Zhang Hu. Yeah. And man, they all do so good. They they stick to their training, but they're just not good enough. It's ah. Right. So so what happens is Ip trains the workers in Kung Fu so they can defend themselves against Jin and his bandits. So we get a little 36 chamber style training montage of them doing forms and punching and, and that sort of thing. And then when Jin and his bandits show up, they all hop into formation and they're all doing their, their punches and stuff. And your heart swells a little bit because you're like, Oh, these workers, they're going to, they're going to take control of the situation. They're going to beat up Jin's bandits. And there's a great little heartbeat in the scene where the bandits sort of rush in and start beating up the workers and they're doing okay. And you're like, yay, they're doing it. And then it turns and everything falls apart at once. And you realize that these NPCs are zero scale. They they got a little bit of help with this the from Ip Man, but it's not the amount of training that they would have needed to take on these bandits. Yeah. Yeah. It's like every time they have an exchange with an enemy, they start off in a pretty solid style and they're using they're using the techniques that they've learned. But then it always generates into basically a slap fest. I think it's really instructive of showing like what zero scale characters look like against higher scale characters, uh, even when they try really hard. It's just it's just not going to work. And this one gives you has that great dramatic tension that you think it's going to work. And so you get that hope, hope, fear cycle churning. Absolutely. And not only is this an example of how weak zero scale characters are, but it's particularly demonstrative because the people they're fighting against are probably only like first scale NPCs themselves. But it's still just that one level of difference makes it impossible for these people to win. Right. So it man comes to the rescue and takes on the bandits and they all pull out a bunch of hatchets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the first ax gang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's like when we didn't really mention this, but Jin pulls out a sword in his confrontation with Ip, and that raises the stakes. And in that one, it manages to deflate the stakes by fighting him with a feather duster. But in this one, they manage to keep the the stakes sort of ratcheted up because even even me, who has seen Ip defeat ten black belt Japanese soldiers, is going, yeah, but these guys have hatchets. They have axes. I I'm worried for Ip Man in this. I I needn't have been worried, uh, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, he he mops the floor with everyone he touches, you know, and it's interesting. There's a there's a moment just before all of the bandits attack Ip Man where Jin and Ip are talking with each other. And Jin says something to the effect of like, 
you ruined my chance of opening a school in Foshan and now you're ruining my chance to get money from these people. Like I, I swore I would never go hungry again. Everybody attack him. And we get an idea for what is fueling Jin's actions, even though he's ultimately just a selfish bandit. Again, there's some heart hidden away in there. There's some, there's some trial and suffering. Right. Right. I mean, it, it's basically Superman. And it's like, if you came up against Superman and he ruined you and you're like, fine, I'm going to go be a villain. Now I tried to do it. I, what I thought was the right way. And, and now, and I got rejected. So now I'm going to try to be the bad guy. And like, well, now what do I do? Right. And yeah. So I guess the cost of Jin's participation in the Jong Hu is that he's given up everything and he lives a beggar's life. Right. Basically. And he wasn't able to make the strategic victories that he needed to make in order to improve his station. Um, and Ip Man has been the stone wall between him and his dreams for, you know, the entire time he's been in Foshan. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what would have happened to Jin had the circumstances been different, right? If he hadn't been a rough northerner, if Foshan would have accepted him differently, or if if when he came in, he acted differently and didn't wasn't so sort of full of braggadocio, you know, whether that would have changed things. Yeah, I like to think that there's a there's an alternate universe where he could have been accepted and he still would always have been at least a little braggadocious, but he at least would have been a member of this ecosystem, you know. But anyway, so not even all of the gangsters with their axes can match Ip Man's Wing Chun. And so finally, it's just down. All of them have been beaten into submission except for Jin and our dear young snitch Yuan, who has since joined the bandits. And uh, they come to fight Ip Man as well. In, and Ip Man has – what is that? Is, is it actually a 10-foot pole? It looks like it's a 10-foot yeah, pole. Yeah, I mean it's, it's a convenient um, bamboo like drying pole or something like that or it held up a curtain or something. But yeah, it's a 10-foot pole. And you put that in the hands of Donnie Yen and some people are going to get hurt. Yeah. And they're not going to get close to him. Not that it would matter if they did, but they're not going to get close to him. <laughs> but we see the escalation in scale. So we see um, basically our, our zero and one scale opponents coming together. And then we see Ip Man versus the axe wielding bandits. Right. And then Jin's got like a pitchfork. And it's nasty. And so it man, you know, he has to step up the stakes and get the staff. He can't just do it hand to hand anymore. You know, he maybe could have, but but this is the this is the demonstration that oh now the stakes are raised. Now 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 they're both using weapons. They're both using real weapons and the consequences of this fight are going to be severe. Yeah. Um yeah, you know, it makes me think of Hero, where at the end of the movie, the king is talking to Jet Li's character, and he's like, I've come to a realization. It's it's this character for sword is the highest expression of swordsmanship, where at a certain level, even if you don't have a weapon, no enemy can defeat you within like 100 paces of where you're standing or something like that. I, I the, That's not a good quote. But um, the moral of the story is, Ip Man is demonstrating the physical reach of his scale with this massive uh, pole arm. And it's just an added layer of how awesome he is in this fight. Uh, really impressive right. stuff. And then finally we get to 
the the final showdown. We've we've talked about it a little bit, but I think there's some interesting things to talk about in terms of ritual and the breaking of ritual and what happens in this fight. Cause the fight itself is great, but it doesn't necessarily have the, will he succeed versus general Miura or not tension in it? At least I didn't feel that when I watched it, it was more of either way. He's screwed tension. Yeah. I, because Sato says, you know, if you win, I'm going to kill you anyway. So you'd better not win or you'd better get ready to die because I would love the opportunity to kill you. But at the same time, we've got all of the martial artists of Foshan who have showed up for this. We've got all the normal people of Foshan who've showed up for this. Um, In a critical moment, his wife shows up and is finally giving him the support that she always regrets not giving him. Um, And we see all of the threads that connect all these people together. And we see the stakes of, of, Ip Man's victory contrasted against the consequences that he's going to suffer that have been like laid on his shoulders. And he has, he can't refuse to fight. There's at one point slightly earlier where Lee says it's more important to stay alive. And I, I was really struck by that because for a Shaw like Ip Man, that's not true. There are more important things than being alive and duty and honor and loyalty are all things that are worth dying for. And I think that's part of the lesson that Lee has to learn at the end of the movie um, when he tries to save Ip from getting shot by Colonel Sato. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think Officer Lee probably thinks he's part of of the Zhang Hu because he gets to carry a gun and he has some sort of legal authority. Uh, I, I would imagine that's probably floating around in his head, uh, which is part of why he's too big for his britches. But uh, I think he doesn't think he's a he doesn't think he's a bad guy. At the beginning, he's part of the, the government and the establishment, but we're shown that that's clearly ineffectual because he is ineffectual. He's the only representative that we see of that, and he gets emasculated in in a very sort of obvious way. And then later we see him being a complete toady. And then we start to see his character come out a little bit that like, actually he's, he's got a, he's protecting his family. And then he brings it man and his family in and sort of puts them under. So he's, he gets a little more nuanced. He's sort of our chief Fox for this story, but, Mm -hmm. but like grimier. For sure. Well, and you know, there's a pivotal scene where he starts to make that change. It's right after the 10 men melee, which is of course, right after uh, master Liu getting shot. And Ip man is walking out of the, the dojo area and officer Lee follows and, and he's like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. Ip man is like, how could you betray your people like this and smacks him across the face? One of the most fa- satisfying face smacks I've ever seen in my life. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Oh man. And and whenever Ip Man leaves the dojo, the general asks for his name and Ip Man says I'm just a Chinese man. Mm-hmm. And that is a really powerful moment where he establishes himself as the icon of China in this city uh that we see paid off mm. in the final fight. But then right after that scene, whenever uh Officer Lee gets smacked, he's he's really thoroughly given a dressing down. And Ip Man walks away totally right, 
totally in the right, I should say. And Officer Lee gets up and he's like, yeah, well, you know what? You might be really awesome, but I'm a Chinese man too. And that struck me that both of them describe themselves as a Chinese man. I think both of them are emblematic in their own ways. And what you said just now made me realize that the difference is that one of them is in the Jianghu and one of them is not. Mm -hmm. And we see what someone in the Jianghu is able to do to resist oppressive regimes in a way that someone outside the Jianghu is unable to do. Right. We see him use his, his toady powers for good a little bit later when he does change, when he does translate for Ip in a way that like won't get him killed immediately, but that will actually progress him towards the the final duel. But it's a, it's a really interesting character arc. He's probably the only character that has an arc through, through the movie. And it's this weird little shallow arc, but it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the other person who comes closest is Yuan, but his arc is even shallower. He he goes from being a carefree kid to finding out that his brother's dead and remembering that he used to fly kites. I mean, there's, there's not a lot there. Yeah. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Uh, I mean, he goes from being a kid who doesn't understand what responsibility is to being a bandit who doesn't know what responsibility is. And then he finally gets to learn what that is in the form of the legacy left to him by his brother. So whew, this movie. Yeah. Right. And so I guess to sum up, finally, all of that comes to a head during this fight with general Miura and Ip man. And that's why the actual action of the fight is not all that important compared to everything that's happening around it. Right. And so what happens? So, it man wins gets shot by Sato and then the people revolt because it's a violation of this ritual space. Mm-hmm. Sato didn't learn his lesson the first time. He didn't. Nope. He, he, he brought a gun into a martial arts fight and the people weren't having it. And they pushed over all of those you know, barbed wire fences and overran all the guards and you just see them swarm in. And that's when uh, the, the, the end cards roll. Yeah. And officer Lee gets his crowning moment of awesome when he's the one to kill Colonel Sato by blowing his brains out Uh, and sort of fulfilling what Miura said, the threat that Miura made that if you bring a gun in here, that you're going to use it on yourself. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well done. Well done. It man. Good job. (laughs) That's awesome. I hadn't (laughs) noticed that. Just put it together. And now I'm feeling smart. Yeah. So that's the movie in a nutshell. Um, There's a lot to unpack and we've tried to keep it focused about either the cost of being in the Jianghu or like a demonstration of scale or something like that. But even within that fairly narrow focus, I think there's a lot of gameable ideas we can draw from the movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about this, this first one, which you have labeled feather duster Beatdown. Cause I have some, I have some thoughts here, but I want to hear yours first. Yeah, so um, what I was thinking is that in that fight between Ip Man and Jin, uh, the northerner, Jin is being overpowered. It's clear that Ip Man's scale is higher than Jin's, and there's just no way he can beat him. But then Jin pulls a sword out, and all of a sudden, Ip Man is, is back on the defensive for a little while. Uh, and he's on the defensive until he grabs a feather duster and start. And now both of them have weapons. And I was thinking at first, I was like, well, is there a situation where unarmed is always 
a lower scale or something than a weapon style. And I was like, ah, maybe, maybe not. But in any case, it seems like an item definitely increases someone's fighting power and a signature item increases that more than a mundane item. But in this case, it just so happens that like Ip was a high enough scale that even a mundane item was still able to overcome Jin's signature sword, you know, um, and we see another example of it because the cotton mill axe bandits, whenever they pulled out their axes, they still weren't able to overpower Ip Man's scale with their little scale boosting hatchets that they were wielding. So I'm wondering then, is a person's scale a function of their level, their chamber, their tier, whatever, plus any relevant mods like weapons or secret techniques or poison or anything like that? So I am going to disagree with you. I, I think that items can be a scale changer. I think we saw that in uh, Iron Monkey with the poison, and we saw it in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon with the green destiny. I feel like those are definitely scale changers, assuming that the person is at least qualified to use those things. But in this scene, what it was was that it took a hand-to-hand fight, which is reasonably non-lethal, and then changed it to a lethal fight. Jin takes this sword it's a it they actually think they throw him the sword right and then he picks it up and he and he swings it down on him and now the stakes have changed right now it's not oh we're just challenging each other and we're going to beat each other up with our hands even though we know that that's deadly it's not the same kind of deadly that sword is deadly yeah it's much more of a decision to make something deadly right. with an unarmed and I think attack that's the the same thing that we see with the axe bandits that it's it's not just oh we're gonna we're gonna rough up some cotton mill workers. Now we're gonna take on Ip Man and we're each gonna have a set of axes. And now the the stakes for the combat are much higher because it's not just like oh Ip's gonna get a little beat up. It's now if Ip makes a mistake, he's gonna get something chopped off. And and then it mm-hmm. goes up one more when Jin has the pitchfork. And that one that those stakes are so high that. Ip Man is not willing to enter that at a lower stake level than his opponent, and that's when he gets the staff. Okay, that tracks. I'm I'm reading uh, Blades in the Dark right now, and it seems like uh, scale is basically then really similar to position uh, in that system. What I think about it is I think about it in a way like Dogs in the Vineyard, where um, you 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 make a roll with your sort of initial thing. And then if you want to, if you don't win, you can bring in, you can increase the stakes. So you can have an argument with someone and if they, if, if they're not agreeing with you, you can punch them. And then if they're, um, they can, they can punch you back. And then if, if neither one of you is, is winning or you're not willing to concede, then you can draw a gun. And what happens is the more things that you bring in, uh, the more what happens is called fallout. So afterwards, after you win, there is a mechanical effect that these, because you've raised the stakes so high that the consequences for those stakes are also greater. Um, in this one, we know that Ip is basically Superman, so he's going to win, but we can see that he's not willing to accept um, these, he's not willing to take on these high level stakes without raising the stakes himself. Um, and it would also make a bore. It would make for a boring scene, where if every if every time I was like, "Oh yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a gun," and you're like, "Oh yeah, 
I'm immune to bullets, so it doesn't matter. You're like, oh, well, this this is boring. Yeah. So it's all about like creating drama. And I mean, I, like I said, I wasn't necessarily worried that it couldn't defeat the axe bandits. Right. But I also knew that the consequences were more severe if he couldn't do it. Yeah. It's the difference between getting right. bruised and getting chopped up. Um, and something that you said earlier, I think is helpful too. Uh, you said that Jin pulls the sword and that raises the stakes. But then when Ip Man grabs the feather duster, it's not that he rises to meet those mm-hmm. stakes. He deflates the stakes back to what they were because mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's a mockery. Yeah. And I think that's what like, it's not a magic feather duster, right? It doesn't, doesn't make him better at Kung Fu. It's showing how preposterous Jin is. And, uh, and I think that's, it's, that's its power. Cool. No, I'm, I'm on board with uh, that. All right. So I like what you have to say here about Ip Man being an active pacifist. Do you want to kind of elaborate that? Yeah. So what I was thinking of specifically in Savage Worlds, they have a hindrance called pacifist and you can make it either minor or major. And the minor hindrance uh, is where basically like you need a good reason to get into the fight. If you're a major hindrance pacifist, then you will not fight until you have been hurt first. And I thought Ip Man throughout most of this, every time he's sparring with somebody, he's fighting with them, but he's not hurting them, especially in the first fight with Master Liu and with his fight against Lim uh, in the courtyard when he rejects his son. Um, Both of those, it's way more of like a teaching session than anything else. He's always pulling his punches. He's just showing you where he could have hit you instead. And so he's what I would call an active pacifist. He doesn't want to hurt people. But he's still willing to show off and he will hurt people if they're bad for his community, which I think is meaningfully different from if they hurt him, he's willing to hit back. It's like, no, 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 we're not talking about physical. We're not talking about physical pain here, physical violence. We're talking about if you do something bad enough for my community, that's my catalyst for action. Yeah, this intersects really interestingly with the sort of peace violence dichotomy that you raised in the last episode. That this one is it's it's like there's another axis of sort of like activity versus passivity uh and then violence versus peace and then rather than being just like oh this is where ip is on this scale it's sort of like where in the story is he at this point because he's being he's getting pressured from different different directions uh he doesn't go out and just like hunt japanese soldiers right He's a martial artist, and so he needs to use his skills within the context of martial arts, except for the one scene. In uh, the Ten Men Melee, you mean? No, except for the scene where the soldiers come to where he lives. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Then he does just absolutely lay them low. Right, but he's defending Um, his home. Right, it's – those stakes are clear, you know. So maybe the – well, no, I think we can I think we can say just that if you violate, if you endanger something, not just if you actually hurt something, but if you endanger something, that can be a, a justifiable catalyst for a pacifist to become violent. Yeah, I think he's got responsibilities. And when those – he is normally a peaceful person, but we see the outside forces that will push him far enough that he will respond with violence. Like it's not enough – we see that reputation isn't enough mm-hmm. right? with master Lou. Yeah. Uh, and Lim is, he's just, he's just teaching him. So that's, that's not a huge thing. And even the 
conflict with Jin in his household is doesn't get serious enough until Jin pulls the sword. And even then he lets him he lets him leave. He he hurts him and Jin could have stopped. Even his friends were like you should stop and he's like no, I'm going to keep going. Yeah, well and we can raise the stakes even more too if we if we fast forward to the cotton mill fight. Um Ip Man defeats Jin yet again and takes his hearing out of one of his ears. I'm positive with with that sound effect. Oh, that's so one of the good. that's one of the sound design moments that's really worth paying attention to. Um but yeah, even in that fight he has enough deference to understand or to to decide that desperate Chinese bandits deserve less punishment than the imperialist Japanese forces. He's definitely got a threshold for where his violence will go. And I think that's that active pacifism that you're talking about, that it will go, it will only go to the level that it needs to go to and no farther. And I think when we see him fighting those 10 guys, I think that's where the one scene where we see him kind of violating that and that's why it stands out so strikingly because he just goes in and he just wants to hurt people in that scene yeah yeah he's out he's out for blood and and that's i think that's like the big character moment for it man in the movie so i want to talk about we we mentioned this a little bit as we've been going through but especially in the early scenes you can tell that it man he loves to fight. He loves it so much. He loves martial arts and he loves fighting and he likes talking about it and he likes practicing and he likes getting into duels for reputation. He gets this, you know, Donnie Yen's got this like beautiful smile. It just it just lights him up. He when he finds out that Jin and his boys are in challenging the town, he's so excited that there's some good martial artists in town that like maybe he could go and fight them yeah it, like Lim frantically tells him they're beating all the masters and it man's like oh are they yeah <laughs> like, that's, that's the best news i've heard all day but oh hold on no i can't like i've got a responsibility here i need to be a responsible person and so it's really interesting because he he loves fighting and he he does eventually get to fight but it's not really a character flaw. It's like a tension. He's not bloodthirsty or anything like that. I, I just, I wasn't exactly sure what to do with this, but I wanted to pull it out because it's a, it's a character trait for Ip. Yeah. I think it's a character trait that he's passionate about fighting. And it's a character trait that he is devoted to his family. So maybe the flaw comes around in that he cannot navigate those two points successfully. He, he makes, he makes choices that hurt people on either side of that equation in different ways. Yeah. I think that they are, they are untenable that like those relationships are untenable. So I thought that was a really interesting thing that they did in the movie was that you can see those two things. He both loves his wife and he loves to fight. And yeah, well, and, you know, talking about how those are untenable, um, the foundational essay that started this whole thing, uh, the Wuxia one that we talked about in the first episode, it talks about how the Shah gives up traditionally Confucian filial values to go off and live in the Jianghu instead. Uh, the classic picture of the Shah is one who abandons family to go live a life of what is basically adventure. Um, and this is a movie that demonstrates to us the 
tension that happens when you try to have both. Right. He has to send his wife and son away so that he can fulfill his obligation within the Zhang Hu. They end up coming back, right? But like he has to make that sacrifice. He doesn't know whether he's going to make it to Hong Kong to, to meet up with them or not. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I think this actually uh, is a nice segue into your point about the Zhang Hu of Foshan being artificial. It's it's artificial to a point. I mean, I think there's only a few members of the actual Zhang Hu in Foshan because they clearly do have an ineffective government governance. Uh, they have Officer Lee. He's clearly a tool, but they're not currently really being oppressed. At any point, they seem to be just a town that their main industry is fighting. Uh, when when Jin is going and fighting all of the, the local masters in town, everybody's running around observing, watching these fights go on like it's just the sports that are going on. And this is this is what we do here. This is this is what Foshan does. It's just martial arts. Like we don't see anything else except for Chow has the the cotton mill. And so it's Ip is the only like member of the Zhang Hu, and he's abstaining from joining the Zhang Hu uh, up until the war breaks out. And you know we see Jin come in, and they're clearly Zhang Hu, but then they sort of get repelled. And you could see that if nothing happened, everything would just sort of continue on this even keel, and. And they would, you know, we would just have martial artists in town, but we wouldn't have the Jung Hue. Yeah, you know, I think about um, this movie takes place in the 1930s, and there's another movie, Fearless, with Jet Li, that's sort of a similar premise, uh, and it also takes place in a, a more modern era. I think Fearless might actually be uh, late 1800s or earlier 1900s, but it's it's not the exact same time as it man. Um, my point in this is saying that. I think this is a vision of the Zhang Hu as it has become a more decadent entity toward the end of its era. Uh, it's no longer a thing where communities need the Shah to be able to oppose a corrupt government so that they can exist. Uh, you know, social or cultural tides have shifted such that the government generally provides an acceptable base level for the people in its society. And so the Shah don't have a function in terms of changing that society, but they still stick around as this sort of, uh, like you said, it's it's more like sports now. You know, they're not they're they're infighting with each other, but even then, it's competitive. It's mm-hmm. not life or death, and they're not using their powers in aid of anything. They just exist for their own benefit. Yeah, and one of the things you mentioned about how Jin is clearly Jin and his gang are clearly actually in the Zhang Hu. I think that's really important because they came from the north, which means that they traveled hundreds, maybe a thousand miles to get to where they are. I don't know the actual geography, Um, but they had to go through some rough territory to get there. They've had practical combat experience on the road, I am certain. And compare that with the much more stylized and decadent martial arts of the people of Foshan. And there's really no competing at all. I mean, you could see someone who like Liu, who comes in and gets fed a meal before he gets a fight. And these guys, Mm -hmm. they're skipping meals, right? Cause they, cause they've got this, this rough lifestyle and they're, they're on the bad guy end of the Jung Hu. Um, But 
they're the only ones that are really exemplifying that those qualities. And so it was, it made me ask a question because I always like to think about the Jong Hyo when we watch these movies is this part's clearly the end of the Jong Hyo. Do we see it start over again at the end of this movie? That's an interesting question. My gut tells me that, uh, the world, the scale of the world has increased such that the only time the Jong Hu is needed is in an international incident. But maybe it is being reborn. I don't. I don't know. Or is that the war that, this, or the the has war created that heterotopic space out of Foshan that the Jong Hu can exist in 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 this movie, and then once that once that pressure is over, it will go away again. Yeah. No, that's a that's a solid possibility. So, I mean, I guess I mean what we see in the movie is that there's probably only a couple members of the Jong Hu in the. So I, there's more than a couple. Okay, so I'm in, I'm just going to list them. There's Ip Man, there's General Mira, and there's Jin, and that's about it as far as like character members of the Jong Hu post 1937. Yeah, some people try to join it. Uh, Master Liu, I think, did not want to, but then he was comfortable putting a toe in the water in the dojo. Uh, Lim certainly tried to join it, um, but he was killed for it because he wasn't good enough. Um, Yuan tried to join it with the bandits, uh, but he also wasn't good enough to be able to stand up when it really mattered. Right. So at the end of the movie, when Jin is, is taken out, Mira is taken out, and then Ip Man is taken out. I think we see we see that little mini Jong Hu just sort of like collapse again. Huh, that's interesting. I just yeah. wanted to like really talk through it and and see what was going on there because it was it was you know it's in the name of the show. We should we should probably look at it. We should. You're right. <laughs> let's move on. Uh, so yeah, we've covered some gameable ideas pretty well. Uh, now let's talk about, and we've kind of talked a little bit about systems throughout then too, but let's talk more specifically about things that we saw in the movie that we can steal as a form of art. All right. And you filled in a lot of these. So I, I will certainly add as, as much as I can, but why don't you take the lead on this? Yeah, sure. So um, the first thing I was thinking of, like I mentioned, I've been reading blades in the dark and the thing that I think is practically a one-to-one translation between Blades in the Dark and this movie is the crew mechanic of Blades in the Dark. You create your character, but then you also, as a party, create your crew, which is your gang. And it helps to define how you gain experience as a group and also helps to define your clout in the city. It's sort of reputation and guidance a little bit equally. Um And we see that, like I said, pretty much one-to-one translation with all these martial arts schools that are in the city. Maybe those schools are a little more decadent than you would expect to see in Blades in the Dark. Uh, But I think the basis of them is the same. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing is that it would depict this decadent time of the Zhang Hu that we see at the beginning of the movie. But – and – you know, it might depict, we'll have to go back and watch some of these ones where like schools are fighting, you know, whether it's like the Wudan versus Shaolin versus, you know, all of these other things and see if like that would also map as equally. But this clearly does like there are, there's Master Liu's school and there's like some of these other masters and they've all got their own thing and they're all just kind of jockeying for position. It, 
the rest of the game wouldn't doesn't map onto it because there aren't like jobs and all of those things on there but like schools as entities that have their own character sheet and have their own skills definitely just perfectly maps i totally agree yeah um also i know previously in the show we've mentioned swords without master before um i have had a chance to read it in the time since and so i'm coming back with my own little nugget of wisdom related to that um in particular there are demands in swords without master which takes place in the rogue phase i think uh the rogue phase is basically I guess archetypally you could consider it being sitting around the campfire and telling stories with each other. And one character can make a demand of another character to describe an important part of their character. Um, And one of the purposes of demands is to take a thing that's been introduced previously in the story and enshrine it as something uh, categorized as that which is named. And they make a point in Swords Without Master of saying that which is named is a designation for a thing that comes with certain perks and perils. Both uh, there are there are uh, protections that happen when you're a thing which is named, and there are also is the possibility of uh, calamity, of catastrophe, disaster, that sort of thing. And so, what I noticed is that in the pivotal scene after the cotton mill fight. Uh, Yuan is starting to run away and Ip Man says, hey, your brother's been holding on to this thing. He wanted to give it to you. And so I think it's a scene and, and we open up this little tin and we find out that it's Yuan's kite that he flew when he was younger. And, and it's a really emotional moment for Yuan as a character. Um, but I think it's a scene where Ip Man makes a demand of Yuan to enshrine that kite as a thing which is named. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. So the rogues phase, uh, one player says to another player, show us blank right so in this one it would be somebody would say to yuan's character show us what token of limbs affection for you is revealed in this scene or something like that you know uh, yeah so it's like a schrodinger's tin for a little while right until until the till the dice are rolled and we figure out how that's going to go we don't we don't quite know what that's going to be yet and then he opens it up and because swords that master also has the oh, what do they call them they're like threads or something like that there are uh you write down imagery that's in the story and then you reincorporate them and you combine them as the story goes on so that kite could have been something from earlier in the story and then you can reincorporate that into the story and then turn it into an object that has more power uh to that character because it is named i like that it would be I mean, I think that Swords of That Master with really no reskinning would work just fine to play a Wuxia game. It would just do the thing um, as long as everyone was aware of kind of the conceits that went into it. The other thing from Swords of That Master that I want to talk about is the tone. So Swords of That Master is a game of tone. You have two dice, you have a glum die, and you have a jovial die. And essentially you roll them, and whichever one is higher that changes the tone of your nar- your narration and it would have to be it would have to be changed slightly for wuxia but we can see in the fight between jin and ip that you know it's very serious and then clearly like the jovial die comes up and that's when that's when like the sun comes in and riding around on his little tricycle 
or that's when um, the you reach to parry the Jin sword, and it man pulls out the feather duster, and now we've got the the light mm-hmm. the light comedic scene instead of yeah, might as well be a rubber right. chicken. I mean, I'm glad it's not because that would maybe break break my immersion a little bit, but it's it's a way of modulating tone that like we don't necessarily have control of like we don't have to predict what's going to happen we just let the dice change it but it's interesting to think if we keep modulating that tone between uh sort of serious and comedic uh or various other things um we can keep the tension of the scene high but not doesn't we don't get stuck in our hope and fear cycle in one or the other you know it's not we don't hit too many of those beats all all in a row. It makes sure that it changes up and down. And so that's the other part of Swords of That Master. I may have talked about that before, um, but it's good to, when we see an example of it, to call it out. And I think that Jin It Man scene is a really good one for uh, changing the, um, the tone sort of consistently up and down as the fight goes on. Yeah, I like that. All right. And our last one is from... Hearts of Wu Lin, which is a powered by the apocalypse project by Lowell Francis, who uh, gave us a really nice shout out on the gauntlet podcast. So thank you very much, Lowell. Yeah. Thank you, Lowell. We've been looking at uh, some of the stuff that you've been working on, on his, his any award-winning age of Ravens blog, which you should check out and talking about scale as it factors into dueling. And I, I want, I want you to talk about this because you added this to the notes, but I went and I looked at this and I'm, I'm a little annoyed how good it is. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I feel like in some ways we're we're doing this thing, but we're also sort of putting ourselves out of a job, but in the best way possible. So, Lowell, it's really tremendous uh, what you've come up with here. But, Eli, why don't you give us a little rundown on what you're talking about here when you edit it to the notes? Yeah, so basically, uh, he's working on this Powered by the Apocalypse hack, and the core mechanic of Powered by the Apocalypse is roll, uh, is it 1 or 2d6? I've actually... It's 2d6. 2d6, that's right. And then your your result will either give you a full success, a partial success, or a failure of some kind. Um, And it's a failing forward most of the time. And so he has made this basically a factor of your scale determines exactly what kind of results you can expect from a conflict. And he says, if your scale is higher than your opponent, then you're going to win. And when you roll, you determine both how badly or how, how, how impressively you win, but also you limit the other person's options in terms of uh, planting a seed of, uh, I guess, redirection or something afterward. Uh, If you roll really poorly and your scale is higher, then the person gets away and they have some sort of critical thing that they can invoke later on. Um, If you're equally matched in scale, then it's pretty typical, you know, full success, partial success or failure. And then if you are actually a lower scale, and this is the part that I thought was pretty interesting. If you're a lower scale than uh, the person that you're fighting, you will lose every time. There's no question about whether or not you're going to lose, but um, you will get to maybe have some little perks that happen here as a result. Um, it says if... Yeah, I have, it, I have it right here. So if if the, if your foe is above your scale, you lose the conflict. Yeah, on a hit, you declare how you lose. On a seven to nine, 
uh, roll, take a powerful blow. So basically what he's saying is um, in Powered by the Apocalypse games, anything that is seven or higher is a hit. Um, but um, anything that's 10 or better is is like a full success. So if so you roll this, you're going to lose. You get to say um, how you lost if you make this roll. And if you only get sort of middling success, then you also have to take like a very serious blow. So it's uh, and then he's got a he's got a thing in here that says once you have faced or studied a foe above your scale, you may do something to even the score. And he lists a whole bunch of different things about things that we've talked about for changing your scale, like studying a secret technique, acquiring a weapon, you know, cheat, and and then you can you can go back and you can try it again. Yeah, and and the really cool part to me is that uh, it, it gives people sort of an empowered choice if they are a lower scale than someone. They can choose to engage with someone, and they know from the get go that success is not an option that's on the table, but it can add to their story in an interesting way. Right. So uh, we really look forward to Lowell kind of putting all of this together into, um, you know, kind of a workable document that we can all use. Uh, we're really excited about this project. I think it's amazing. And um, I, I think he's, he said he cited us as an inspiration. Well, we are inspired by you as well, Lowell. So thank you very much. Yeah. Flattered and inspired in equal measure. All right. So let's move on to comments. We've just got kind of one long one here today since we worked in some of the comments from our, our live tweet uh, into the, the body of, of what we talked about today. But Jared Rasher's got a bunch of thoughts that he just sort of like dumped on us. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he actually posted this about a month ago. Um, and I, I tucked it away in our notes because I knew it would become relevant at some point, And I realized that this is the episode where it could become relevant. So, um, yeah. So, so Jared says, totally random thought. And it's filtered through my lens of thinking currently about 7th C. But one thing that struck me is that a character that has died might get, for example, one hero point for each other character in the group. Until they introduce a new character, every time another character takes an action... The person who died can have a flashback where they remind the acting character of a moment between the two and then award them the hero point to spend. In that way, you don't cheapen the character death by saying, well, the slot's open, who's next? And you have the chance to have characters think about what that character meant to the group while still giving the player something to do in the session. Also, I'll totally say that having something for a player with a dead or incapacitated character is something I really like from both 13th Age and the Sentinels of the Multiverse card game. Um, it's a great thought. Uh, and the thing that made me connect it to this movie is Lim's sacrifice versus General Miura. Uh, I think not only is that the catalyst to get Ip Man involved in the conflict, it's also eventually the catalyst for Yuan's implied redemption because... Yuan, in that moment where he gets the tin, he doesn't want anything to do with his brother until he finds out his brother's dead. And then he sees the kite, and then he realizes his brother's last act, basically, was to get this thing to him, and that's what changes him. And it just made me think about the impact of a character death on a game. Yeah, it's one of those things that if you've ever played a game of Fiasco, where your characters died really early... Uh, we had a, I had a game, we were playing a noir setting and I think three of the four characters were dead two thirds of the way through the story. 
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so, but we still had scenes for those characters. And so we ended up having to flash back and fill in the story from before they died or flash to a point where their influence was felt, even though they weren't in the scene. It was very, it was a challenging thing to do, but it made the story very rich. And it's a great thing to do uh, in a game that has voluntary death, like Seventh Sea and Fiasco, to be able to work those characters back into the story, even though they are dead. Because it, that feels very narrative to me. That feels like a thing that would happen in the story is you'd get a flashback or you'd get, you'd get an example of you, – you could see what the characters were thinking about the character that they've lost. And then that changes their actions. And yeah, it's, uh, that's a really nice thing. I, I think that's, that's smart, Jared. So I was going to ask you, Eric. Um, you said that it was a challenging thing for you guys to do in your mm -hmm. fiasco game. And I would imagine at least part of that was because it wasn't something you were expecting to have to do. It was something that emerged in play and all of a sudden you had to find a solution for it. Um, do you think it would be an, a less challenging thing to do if there was like a, an explanation for, hey, this sort of thing could happen in the rule book of Fiasco to prepare you for it? Or do you think it's just inherently? Difficult? I think it actually does prepare you for it in the rule book of Fiasco. Uh, the... It, it talks about sort of having flashbacks and if your character has died, now what? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that's in there. Uh, it's a pretty well-written rule book, except for the fact that when I read through it, I still didn't know what play looked like. Um, but as far as the, the actual things that will come up that are of concern in play, I thought it did a good job of covering those, and that was one of them. And so even though I was, even though I, it was challenging, it was challenging on a way of like a writer's table sort of challenging, like, oh, well, this was obviously the right thing to happen in this scene, but now what? Now we got to iron yeah, out the kinks. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, and it's totally fine if it's just a challenging thing. I wondered though, if like, oh, well maybe, so I guess what I have learned is that we are probably going to have some sort of some form of voluntary character death in our game, and it's going to be important to provide a caveat or a note about what to do when that happens. <laughs> yes, uh, I think death is not the end necessarily, and there are lots of different ways to deal with that problem. But this is the end of the show. Very nice segue, <laughs> man. All right. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, uh, we can't compete with a segue like that. So uh, thanks for listening. And remember to make your Kung Fu stronger. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Thanks for listening. You can reach Eli at ZapDynamic on Twitter or at his website, MythicGazetteer.com. And you can reach me at Eric M. Farmer on Twitter or at my website, dogpoweredvehicle.com. Or you can reach both of us at Jianghu Hustle on Twitter, Jianghu Hustle at gmail.com for email, and on the Misdirected Mark website.